0: Hosea, um, I'm just going to constrain myself to the first three chapters. You'll all be happy to hear. Uh, Not all 14. But just to give you some context of where we are, because in this summer series on personalities in Scripture, sinners and saints, we're kind of jumping around the Bible a fair bit. And I don't know when the last time you spent time in the Minor Prophets was, but just to give you some context of where Hosea is historically and where he's speaking, he's a prophet of the early 8th century B.C., about 770 to 725 B.C., roughly. And in this book, he's addressing the northern kingdom of Israel mainly. And after Solomon and Solomon's children, there was a civil war, and the nation of Israel actually split for a time. And there was a northern kingdom, which was everything sort of north of Jerusalem. And uh, it was... um, Asher and Dan and Ephraim and Gad and Issachar and Manasseh and Naphtali and Reuben and all those tribes up there. Ten tribes formed the northern kingdom. And then you have the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. So Israel, the northern kingdom was still called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And it was basically just Judah and Benjamin. And it was largely around Jerusalem. And uh, so you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, Jeroboam is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he's a successful king, but he's not a good king. And so the country, when Hosea is speaking, is economically prosperous, but it's morally corrupt. And you see that in Amos 5. You see it later in Hosea 6. And then in the southern kingdom of Judah, Jotham is king, and he's actually considered a good king. But Judah's time is coming, too, when Ahaz takes the throne and Judah starts going sideways as well morally And Hosea refers to Judah a few times while addressing Israel. You'll see in the text he refers to Judah, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But that's just to give you a context. So Hosea is a prophet speaking to this divided kingdom of Israel, but mainly to the northern kingdom of Israel. And Hosea's theme for the northern kingdom of Israel, to borrow some words from the Apostle Paul, is that the unfaithfulness or the faithlessness of man does not nullify the faithfulness of God. That's, that's really the theme of Hosea. And in all 14 chapters, you get more detail, but in the first three chapters, you really get a picture of the entire book. And so, speaking to his fellow countrymen uh, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, what if some were unfaithful, meaning some Jews were unfaithful, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And so what we will see throughout the book of Hosea, especially in the first three chapters, is Hosea sets in contrast the unfaithfulness of man with the faithfulness of God. And the faithlessness of Israel with the complete faithfulness of God. And we will see in this book, as I get into it, that God compares his covenant with Israel to a marriage. He says that he has wooed Israel. He says he has won Israel. He says he has courted Israel. He says he's married Israel. He says he's betrothed Israel. And even though God has covenanted with Israel in this way, Israel has flirted with and ran to false gods, or baals will be the word that's used in the text. The baals of the land of Canaan. And they have aligned themselves with pagan countries for protection, and they've paid tribute where they should not. Essentially, they have had their heads turned by other gods. When they, when they settled in the promised land after trekking through the desert and they came to the land of milk and honey and they settled and built cities and began farming and raising flocks, they began to adopt the gods of agriculture and fertility and commerce, and they started to think that the grass was greener on the other side of the fence, basically. They thought that these other gods, fertility gods, agriculture gods, commerce gods, were the reason for their success. And they were discontent with that old desert god that just gave them, you know, manna and quail in the wilderness. And they loved these new gods that were flowing with milk and honey. They thought that their success and their profit and their sustenance came from those gods. And so they cast their eyes around and began worshiping other household gods. That's essentially the history of Israel repeated over and over again. And Hosea is now speaking to this Israel that is again drifted away from God and are thinking that their prosperity is due to the Canaanite Baals. But instead of divorcing them, God is determined to redeem the relationship that his people have broken with him. And so God reveals his faithfulness to us through Hosea and his wife, Gomer. Now, there's a lot of beautiful female biblical names that we've picked up on in our culture. Gomer, I have not heard. I don't know why. Parents, next little baby girl, think maybe Gomer could work, okay? Like, let's bring it back. But this wife of Hosea, Gomer, Hosea and Gomer are going to paint a picture in a very remarkable way. God arranges in Hosea's life a living allegory of this relationship that he has with Israel and with his people through the experience of an unhappy and a broken marriage. So God sets up a broken marriage, an unhappy marriage, in order to paint a picture for his people through the prophet Hosea. And then he accompanies that marriage and that living allegory with a prophecy that interprets the picture being painted by Hosea's experience. And so chapter one is the experience and chapter two is the interpretation. And then chapter three is very short, just 10 verses. It comes back to the experience again to kind of emphasize it. So let's look at the experience of Hosea first in chapter one. Says, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Biri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he's talking about the kings of Judah in the south, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, in the north. When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so right off the bat, there's just no avoiding the shocking nature of the experience that God has in store for Hosea. It's intended to be shocking. And actually, in this text, you are going to find some of the most explicit language in terms of our relationship with God and God's relationship with us. It will become very apparent in chapter 2 just how seriously God desires this relationship with us and how much of himself he's willing to give for relationship with you. You might not know that God loves you. You might not think that God loves you like this. You might think that God loves you in some sort of safe, sort of religious, churchy way. This text shows you the heart that God has for his people. And it is shocking. And it's set up as shocking right away. I'll stick with the sort of traditional term harlot for discretion, but you can substitute in your minds when I say the word harlot a more modern or shocking term as you read it. And if you do so, the most shocking term you can come up with in your mind would be faithful interpretation of the text. It's meant to be a shocking word. And so he says, take a wife of harlotry, have children of harlotry, Because Israel is a flagrant harlot. It's repeated three times, and as you know in Hebrew, repetition is the law of emphasis. And so three times he refers to this harlotry. He says, marry a woman who will be unfaithful, who will even bear children in her unfaithfulness, who we will, as we see, completely break her covenant with you. So verse 3, so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them but I will have compassion on the house of Judah. See, now he's talking about the southern kingdom. And deliver them by the Lord, their God, and will not deliver them by the bow, sword, or battle horses or horsemen. The Northern kingdom went into captivity first, and it was several decades later that the southern kingdom went into captivity. So he says, I'm going to bring punishment to Israel now. Judah's time is coming in a while. And when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him lo Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. And so basically she bears three children, Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and lo Ami. And the text says that the first son is born to Gomer was Hosea's child. It says she bore him a son. And we're not told that in the case of the second and third children. And in chapter 2, it suggests that she actually bore those second children to other men, that they were not Gomer's Children. They were the children of her unfaithfulness. But the thing that we look at here are the symbolic names that they are given. The first one, God directs Hosea to call the name of his son Jezreel. And in a negative sense, it means God scatters. If you were to say it in a positive sense, it means God sows. But in Hebrew, the name Jezreel, even as I say it, you realize it sounds a lot like Israel. So it's one of those Hebrew puns where he's saying that Israel, the prince of God, would become Jezreel, scattered by God. And so there's a prophetic word here for the people of Israel that they will be scattered by God rather than being the prince of God. And there's two other ways that the text says the name Jezreel is significant. It says that it's punishment for the bloodshed by the house of Jehu in the village called Jezreel. So he's saying, I'm punishing you for that wickedness. And then he says that he is going to break the bow of Israel. In other words, their military might will be shattered in the valley of Jezreel. And that prophecy was fulfilled when the Northern Kingdom gets taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And so God declares Basically, that this first son is this prophetic name that God is going to scatter Israel, He's going to break Israel. Then there is a daughter, a second child, Lo Ruhama, which literally means she has not obtained mercy or there is no pity, there is no compassion. And the word Rahamah is connected with the word womb and it indicates the sort of warm compassion that a mother has for her child. The Old Testament frequently speaks of God in this way. Later on in Hosea, he says, will we never again say our gods to what our own hands have made for you, for in you the fatherless find compassion. So normally the fatherless find rohamah in God, but he says, lo Rahamah, you will not have any of my compassion. In Proverbs 28:13, it says, "Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy or Ruhamah. And so, God is often referred to as the God of Mercy, the God of ruhama, and He names this second child, "Lo ruhama," you will ha- not have my mercy. It's saying God will not deal with Israel with compassion any longer. God would no more show compassion on the house of Israel. He has been sh- showing them compassion to the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam. They have been prosperous. They have been safe. They have been supplied for, but he's no longer going to overlook their sin. He says the second child's name is, I will no longer have mercy. And then the third child, perhaps the worst of all, after Rahamah. Gomer bears her third child and it's another son and the name Loami means not my people. And this signifies, I think, perhaps the most devastating word of judgment to come upon Israel from God because the Lord would no longer recognize Israel as his people. They would no longer be the nation of promise. They would basically be like Gentiles. They would no longer be the special favored nation. And in that sense, because they are like Gentiles, we know that it would still be possible for individuals to be faithful. There would always be a remnant who would be truly faithful for God. We see that even in the captivity with Daniel and others. But that Israel as an ethnic nation is now long, now no longer the chosen people of God. They are essentially like Gentiles. That basically... The, the way back to God is going to be left open for Israel, as we'll see, but at this point he says to them, I am not your God, you are not my people. As a nation, they no longer can claim God as their own. So they're scattered in judgment, they're not pitied, and they're not my people. And this is terrifying for Israel to hear, because it goes against all of God's covenant. Even as I say that, I think I'm, it's difficult to even say, because Israel... Is God's chosen people Israel are God's chosen people and he's covenanted with them forever and here through his prophet he's saying I'm not going to call you my people anymore can you imagine after living under and living with God for over a thousand years to hear from his prophet that now as a nation you are no longer going to be his nation anymore A thousand years through the wilderness, in the promised land, through the judges, through the kings, everything that's gone on, God has always been there for Israel, and now he's declaring through his prophet that you are no longer my people. This is terrifying for them to hear, that he would no longer have mercy, that they're going to be scattered. But the chapter doesn't end there. As Allison mentioned, you have to keep reading. In fact, almost every question you have about anything in the Bible is virtually answered by the same thing. Just keep reading. You come to a text and you think, I don't understand this text. Just keep reading. God doesn't seem to be faithful here. Just keep reading. It seems like this doesn't make any sense. Just keep reading. Whenever you come in the Bible where you are confused, the answer is almost always, just keep reading. And it's true here, because you just keep reading. It doesn't end there. The chapter doesn't even end there. The book certainly doesn't. And history doesn't. And we'll come back to this in more detail a little later as we pick up Hosea in chapter 3. But God says here in chapter 1, by way of showing hope, in verse 10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So now it's Jezreel God sows, not Jezreel God scatters. So it says yet or nevertheless, there's hope. Nevertheless, yet in spite of the impending doom for the northern kingdom, Israel as a people would still achieve her purpose in God's program. The this phrase that he uses there, the sentence, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's covenant language, isn't it? Right. That's straight out of Genesis 22, 17 or Genesis 32, 12. God is communicating here very deliberately through Hosea with literally a covenant phrase uh, reminding them of the covenant that he has with Abraham, reminding them that it is a covenant forever. And so he says, yet... The covenant is still there. He's communicating that the promise is still solid. You are going to be numbered like the sands of the sea. I'm not completely forsaking what I have agreed to do. The names of the three children will be reversed. Jezreel will not mean scattered in judgment, but sown as seed for fruitfulness. No mercy will be named mercy, and not my people will be called my people again. And we see this even in Isaiah 62, 4, God speaking again through the prophet Isaiah. He says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And so God is always speaking of future hope. So that's the experience of Hosea so far. He has a wife that proves unfaithful. He has three children with names of divine judgment. And now in chapter 2, as you follow along in Hosea, God shifts from this sort of living allegory in Hosea's life to prophetic speaking or the prophetic word or prophecy of Hosea. And so we look at that message and the message in chapter 2 remains exactly the same. The unfaithfulness of man does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Just keep rehearsing that in your mind. The unfaithfulness of man does not nullify the faithfulness of God. This is the message of Hosea. The first half of chapter 2 deals with our unfaithfulness, and the second half of chapter 2 deals with God's faithfulness. So let's look at the unfaithfulness of man, or the faithlessness of man. Hosea 2.2. He says, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband and let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. And so he's saying here the children of Israel, true Israel, people who are still following after God should plead with the rest of Israel to return to her first husband. Plead with Israel, the wife, the adulteress to return to her original love. And we see the text is careful to say, Contend with your mother. It doesn't say, Contend with my wife, because he says, She's not my wife. I'm not her husband. At this point, God says, The marriage is over, the covenant is broken. At least some of these children are not Hosea's children. He no longer considers Gomer his wife. He is no longer considered her husband. And this is how God now views Israel. He says, plead or contend or beg your mother to stop chasing after other gods, other desires, other satisfactions, and return from her adultery. Why? Hosea 2.5 goes on. He says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who will give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now, it's interesting, as she's going to these other gods, as she's going to these other sources for satisfaction, she thinks she's getting provided for by her other lovers or her other gods, when in fact everything she still has comes from God, her first husband. Hosea 2.8, he makes it clear. He says, For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. You see what Hosea is saying here, what God is saying through Hosea. He's saying even as we are unfaithful, we don't realize that it is still always God who's giving us life and health and freedom and sustenance for us to even be able to choose other gods before Him. You think of the prodigal son. The prodigal son did not go off on his own means to you know, go into the far country and live his life of pleasure on his own. He took dad's money to go and run away from dad and live that life and when dad's money ran out he realized where his actual sustenance came from was back at dad's house right and hosea is saying the same thing he's saying that this Gomer, this Israel, who has gone out to other lovers and chased after other gods and Baals, thinking that they are supplying her wool and her wine and her oil, he says, it was always me all along. I gave her the grain. I gave her the new wine. I lavished on her silver and gold, which they've used to go and you know spend at the temple of the Canaanite Baals. God has never been unfaithful. He's always been sustaining them. And this is the problem mankind finds itself in all the time. This is our fundamental problem. We de-God God. We're always rebelling and chasing idols and depending on false security and we are choosing to try to drink at dry cisterns that will not satisfy. Even while at the same time that we are chasing after those false things that never fulfill our life, God is patient with us and still sustaining us. And we think that our joy and our satisfaction is coming from these things in the world that we are chasing rather than from God, when in fact it's God who gives us any ability to experience joy or be satisfied at all. It's God who provides everything in this world, and yet we offer him no worship or thanks. And we do that spiritually, and we do it physically, and we do it emotionally. And this is the sin God sees in Israel, that God sees in all of mankind. Paul picks up on this in Romans 1. When he's talking about the sin of all of mankind in Romans 1, 22 to 23, he says, professing to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. He's talking about actual idol worship, but you know we can sort of laugh and say, well, we don't worship idols. Really, don't we? Don't we worship The idol of money and the idol of sex and the idol of marriage and getting the response that I need from my husband or my wife. The idol of self, really. We worship the idol in the mirror. What is best for me today? And Hosea said that God realizes that this is what Israel is doing. Paul says in Romans that this is what we all do. We think we're smart, we think we're wise, but we're fool because we give up the image of God and we chase after corruptible man. Now this story works for most of us on an allegorical level. The allegory that God uses is marriage, that we must not chase after false gods, just like we should not be adulterers in marriage, that we should not be unfaithful to God, but it could be working for some people on a literal level. You should not be unfaithful in your marriage, either by looking elsewhere or treating your spouse with contempt. So there might be a very literal application for some people here too, but we'll take the allegorical one. So that's the unfaithfulness of Israel. That's the unfaithfulness of man. Israel is seeking satisfaction in false places, even while God is patiently still sustaining Israel. But then, as the chapter goes on, we see the faithfulness of God and his character. Israel will not right away return to God, but God will act in such a way that it makes it harder for Israel to continue rebelling against him. This is the most amazing part. This is where you want to listen in now if you've been drifting off for a little bit, this next five or six minutes. Because God is going to make it more and more difficult for Israel to chase after false gods and make it so that Israel wants to return to Him. So even in her unfaithfulness, God hints at His plan to restore her and to restore us. If you're Going on, he says in verse six, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. Isn't that amazing? So God says, Israel's going to keep chasing after those false lovers. Israel's going to keep chasing after those false gods. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a hedge up. I'm going to put a wall up. I'm going to make it hard for her to find her way. And those things, she's not, she's not going to find what she wants there. She's going to be looking, but she's not going to find. And then she will eventually remember her first love. So even while we are unfaithful, God is guiding our paths, putting up hedges, putting up walls, saying you're not going to be satisfied there. You're not going to find what you're looking for there. You're going to keep seeking, but it will not be found. And eventually you will remember me. I will keep you from completely abandoning the covenant, Israel. I will prevent you from completely distancing yourself from me. You are going to run away, but I'm going to hedge you in. I'm going to divert you back to me. As you pursue others, you will not find. And you will finally return to your first love. Once Israel realizes that life with God is better than life without God. And I think all of us here, Christians and non-Christians too, we've remembered life without God. And we know that life with God has got to be better and is better. And then we have life with God for a while for us believers with Jesus. And then we we wander for a while and we have a little bit of life without Jesus. And then we remember life with Jesus is a lot better. And we come back to life with Jesus, right? And, and this is a bit of the human heart. This is a bit of the human experience. But God has no doubt that life with God is better than life without God. And so... God is going to cause them to return. But it doesn't just stop there. This is, this is where it gets really, really cool. Because there's three things that God will do that we find in the second half of chapter 2 that are just, when you stop to think about them and you pull them out of the text, are really quite mind-blowing. In Hosea 2, the first thing is, is God will woo us to return. Hosea 2, 14 and 15 so he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Now get this, we are, we are all guilty of loving other things more than God. We are guilty of loving money or loving fame or loving possessions or just loving ourselves more than God. And God has at times in our life been boring to us or too rigid or too ineffable or too confusing or too inconvenient you know we just we don't get god or he doesn't get us or it's just it's frustrating or whatever and so we come to those points in our life where god is just boring or rigid or unappealing to us or predictable or whatever it is and so like gomer we've set our eyes and our hearts on other things that we think are better it's better to live this way or it's better to live that way i get so much more happiness this way And and like Gomer, we've set our eyes and our hearts on pursuing other things that are not God, but God hasn't abandoned us, even though we are a harlot, even even though we are adulterous to him, even though we run from him. Verse 14 and 15 here say that God wants to get us alone so that he can speak tenderly to us, literally speak to our heart. And so if you're here tonight and you've been drinking at dry cisterns that don't satisfy, then go with God into the wilderness and let him get you alone and let him teach you about his love for you. Because God wants to woo you. Now, as men, it's kind of weird. Don't let the gender thing throw you off, okay? The allegory is a man and a woman. Don't let that throw you off, guys. God wants your heart. God wants to... Attract your attention back again. He wants you satisfied in him and he will woo you the way you court the woman or the man you want to marry. He'll pursue you like that. But then second, so that, that's amazing right there just to think that God thinks of us that way. But then secondly, it says God will then give us hope in 15. It says, and there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acor a door of hope. Now the Valley of Achor is where, um, if you remember back when uh, they were first entering into the Promised Land and they were doing battle, and Achan disobeyed God and he kept the spoil of, of war for himself, even though God said, "Don't take any of the treasure," and he took some of the treasure and he hid it, and God was angry and destroyed him. And Joshua named that place there the Valley of Trouble or the Valley of Achan, and so that's that's what or Achor, and that's what he's uh, referring to here. And so God is basically saying the valley of trouble is going to become a doorway of hope. So whatever trouble you've gotten in while you've been pursuing other gods, while you've been disobeying God, whatever valley of trouble you've created for yourself, God is basically saying, I will make that valley of trouble into a doorway of hope. Because when we have traveled far enough away from God, when we have chased enough false dreams and enough false pleasures and enough false satisfactions, there comes a time when our initial infatuation with whatever the love of the moment is in our life, when that infatuation is gone, our initial joy starts to become despair because we realize that that thing that we've been chasing after does not ultimately satisfy us. It will not ultimately save us. It is not ultimately eternal life. And so we lose hope. And whatever we've been chasing just lets us down. And it doesn't have the satisfaction we thought it had or the happiness that we craved. But God says, if you listen to my love song, if you come away with me in the wilderness, if you let me speak tenderly to you, if you return, I will make what used to be a valley of trouble for you into a doorway of hope. When we sin, there's no going back to undo it. If we steal something, it's possible to return what is stolen sometimes. But we are forever a thief. There's no moral way to remove what we've done. If we lie, we can later on tell the truth, but the lie remains part of our history. If we commit adultery, it can't be done at all. The act remains and the consequences remain, just as they did with Gomer and her children. So in the Bible, there's basically no going back. When we wander, when we sin, when we rebel, when we are adulterous towards God, there is no going back and fixing it in that sense, but God provides a way forward. There is hope in the future. There's hope in his mercy. Remember, he's saying to his people, I will call you Rohama again. You will have mercy. I will have mercy. And so with God, it's always looking forward. It's always, I've forgotten the sins of the past, and the hope is in the future. And our hope is found in the cross of Christ. So he offers hope. And then thirdly, God says he will restore the original marriage relationship. Again, just incredible. Hosea 2, 19 and 20. He says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you in me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. I betroth you forever. I betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and mercy. I betroth you in faithfulness. I betroth, I betroth, I betroth. He says it three times. Remember he said harlotry, harlotry, harlotry three times? Now he says, betroth, 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 three times. So you don't miss it. Repetition is the law of emphasis in Hebrew. And then, after he says he will betroth us in all of these things, these might be my new favorite wedding vows. I'm going to use these the next time I have to marry somebody. (laughs) I'll suggest them anyway. But after he says all these betroths that he's going to do, then he says the most astounding and most intimate thing possible. And he says, After I betroth you, and you shall know the Lord. Now you gotta get this. In the context of marriage, that means no in the literally biblical sense. Okay, as in Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore Cain, Genesis four, one, or Joseph knew Mary not until after she had borne a son. God says that when we return to him, he will not withhold anything. We are returning to the most complete and most com- intimate relationship possible with him. God wants to know us like men and women who are married know each other. And that language is used in Ezekiel, and it's used a lot of different places. Like I said, when you get into Hosea, you realize there's the most explicit language used here in terms of how God intends to restore his relationship for us, and for him to use this language to show us his heart, his desire to know us. That he is not just something that at arm's length or some list of rules that you follow and go to church and do this and that you can pray to him and maybe he'll do something for you. God is speaking in Hosea in the most intimate way possible to say this is how he desires that we know him. When we are rebellious and turn to other idols, when we sin, our relationship with God is broken. Just as if you sinned against your spouse, or sinned against even your best friend, right? You don't make eye contact, you avoid the topic, you find excuses to stay late at work. The relationship is broken by the guilt of that sin. But God intends to restore that relationship, and it's the most intimate kind of relationship. We're not just acquaintances. We're not just servants who come back to God and say, Okay, God, what do you want me to do? We're not just soldiers or guests or clients. All all of those allegories and metaphors, none of those work. That is not God's relationship with us. God wants us as a wife or as a husband. And again, don't let the gender ambiguity of the metaphor distract you from the main point. God wants your whole heart and he wants you to know his heart. He's used marriage as an allegory and as a metaphor on purpose because he says, this is the intimate relationship I want with you. God fully intends to get Israel back. He intends to get us back. So let's get back to the experience of our prophet and his prostitute and the experience of Hosea and Gomer because it drives the point home because God tells Hosea, after all of this has happened with his wife Gomer, he says this to him. He says, basically, you've got to go take her back. And chapter 3 is very short, and it returns to this narrative of Hosea, and it paints this concluding picture of God's redeeming love for his people. So now Hosea speaking says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. It's nine bushels, if you were wondering. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the harlot or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. He's talking about all the years of captivity coming. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So basically, after this unfaithfulness that breaks the marriage covenant, remember, said that she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. I basically got divorced at this point, and she's had children by other men. Hosea is told to go and love her again, even to purchase her back from the man that she is currently with. And so he pays some silver and some barley, and I think if you add it up, it's basically the price of a servant, but he pays that essentially equivalent of 30 shekels uh, that we run into over and over again in the Bible. And he, he basically redeems her. He, he buys her back from a man who's not her husband. And he tells her, that life is over. You're mine again. right? That that life without God, that life without Jesus, that life that you are living, that life is over. You're back with me now, and I am with you. And this is God's promise to Israel, that after they dwell without a government in captivity, or a temple that's destroyed, or any sort of regular daily life, they will come back to worshiping God again. And this is also what God promises us because we are the spiritual descendants of Ruhemah and Ammi. We who had no mercy will receive mercy. We who were not God's people will become God's people. In fact, two times, both Paul in Romans 9 and Peter name us as Hosea's children are named. 1 Peter 2.9 nine. Look at this New Testament context to exactly this story. This is Peter saying, this is us. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10 is where he drives it home. Once you were called not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If he was saying that in Hebrew, he would say, Once you were low, am I, but now you are am I. Once you were low, rohema, but now you are ruhema. So Paul, in Romans, I won't do that one, but Peter here especially very clearly says, This, this is us that God is talking to. He's not just talking to ethnic Israel. He's not even just talking to faithful Israel or remnant Israel. He's not just talking to the Jewish people. He's not just talking to the descendants of Solomon and David. He's talking to us. And so we wonder at the faithfulness of God in the face of our unfaithfulness. Even when we don't return God's love, even when we spend years of our lives never thinking about God, Years of our lives just pursuing other things and not giving him the time of day. God continues to love. And he puts up hedges and he puts up walls to redirect us back to him. And then finally one day we find ourselves in the presence of God, wondering how we even got into his presence because we were never pursuing him. But he said, I'm going to bring you back and you are going to remember where everything you have actually comes from where real satisfaction comes from. God's love is consistent even when it's unreturned. He will discipline and he will judge us as he must. And as we look last week, his judgment is not inconsistent with his love. He judges because he loves, but he will never withdraw his promise to receive any who come to him. The experience of Hosea... Or more specifically, the experience of Gomer is the experience of the gospel. God loves us. God gave his son to die for us, and he has pledged his love to us, and that his love will never let us go. Our God is a God who pursues unfaithful rebels out of his love. So if you are here and you have never loved God as you should, or if your love of God has faded, if you are secretly setting your satisfaction and your desire on the created rather than on the creator, then the message of Hosea is clear. Your love affair is not over. God will woo you. God will offer you hope. He will restore your relationship with him forever. You've tried life without him. And any good that was there has come from him anyway. And now return and try life with him. God wants to give you life abundantly, to give you life eternally. He wants you to drink living water. He does not want you to thirst in your soul by trying to drink at wells that are drying up. And the well of fame and the well of money and the well of whatever worldly pleasure you are pursuing will ultimately dry up. But the love of God will never run dry. And so God's pleading with Israel... And as we see in Peter, he's pleading with us to go to him in the wilderness, to go in the quiet place of your heart and listen to his calling. He wants to speak tenderly to you. He has shown you his love on the cross of Christ. 2,000 years ago, the love of God was settled when he sent his son to die a bloody death on a cross to pay for sins that we could never repay. He's proven his love once and for all. You can count on the cross of Jesus. Respond to that love with repentance. Return from seeking satisfaction in false gods and false places. God wants nothing more than to speak tenderly and to restore that covenant relationship, a new covenant in the blood of Christ with you. A covenant forever. I betroth you, I betroth you, I betroth you forever. It's incredible how God has used Homer, or, or Hosea and Gomer, how He's used them to paint this picture in a living allegory of what He desires for us that relationship, that marriage. God loves you. Go to Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Hosea. I'm sure at some point in his life, he woke up in the morning and he didn't really want to be a prophet of God. And then you told him what he had to do and he was really second-guessing whether he wanted to be a prophet of God. But Lord, we give him praise and thanks for his faithfulness to your word and to you. That he would speak truthfully to his nation that he would act out in allegory the reality of your love for them that he would recognize that even the brokenness of his life and his marriage was not without purpose but that you were working it to good more good than he could imagine that it would be a testimony for three thousand more years of your love so lord we thank you for your word we thank you what it teaches us we thank you that that your heart is what it is. Frankly, Lord, it blows me away that you love us like that. Help us by your Spirit to return that love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.